As Chris shared earlier, we will be looking at bringing 1 Peter to a conclusion. I don't think it's going to happen today. Probably it's going to press us into next week. I had originally planned to finish that today, but it's, I don't think that's going to occur. Uh, and so we are going to, <laughs> something about studying more, you just say, I need to take more time. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm an old timer now, and it's just I want to move more deliberately. Um, but we want to uh, look into, uh, again, a element that really calls us back to the first part of Peter, that Peter again reiterates today, and we're going to see that. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, as we want to read this portion coming into what we're going to be studying, and hopefully it'll bring to mind what we have studied in the past, uh, to bear upon really these last few verses of 1 Peter. So let's begin in verse 6 of chapter 5, if you want to read there. And I'm reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. He, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, we come to this text and we recognize that um, we are drawing some things to a conclusion. He really has already done that in terms of his major themes uh, but we, that we really finished up last week. Uh, we're going to revisit one or two today and probably one or two tomorrow to tie this up. Because the last verse really talks about our relationship one to another in this very practical area of how to greet one another. And really in the next to last verse of, of greeting, not only within the context of the personal greeting of the last verse, whereby how are we to approach one another, uh, we're going to talk about that next week, but also about between churches and that's going to be referenced a little bit today. I don't know how much I'm going to get to it, but we're going to uh, strive to get to that point. But we find that he uh, has given us some personal data. And we can often just relegate this to some historical information that we could just pass on and log in our minds and say, well, that's interesting. Uh, I don't know what it means to me. Uh, hopefully we will delve a little bit more into it and recognize the uh, testimony that is there. That's really a word that Peter uses in this text, that what I've written to you is a testimony. And he's going to continue that uh, into 2 Peter as well. But this is his testimony. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. And so we find that he is, his, he is going to summarize his writing, saying, listen, this is just a brief statement. 
We could go on and on and on, and it probably seems like we have, because I've taken words and make whole sermons out of them. And so I've taken his brief statement and made it, what, I don't know, has it been a year we've been studying First Peter, a little longer maybe? And so we have been breaking this down, recognizing the brevity of his writing does not mean that it does not have great depth. And, and that's what we want to demonstrate. And so, but he talks about this as his testimony. And so when we read the historical elements of these relationships that he talks about here and the historicity of them, that's interesting, but it's not always something that we recognize as impacting into our relationships, but they should be. And so I want to talk about some of these men, but before I can get to those, I have to deal with what, how Peter summarizes what he has taught. And that is really built up into this statement in the middle of the verse that says uh, what he has written about and what is exhorting us. An exhortation is a little different than testimony. Testimony is simply, here's the example, here's my experience, here's what um, God has taught me, here's what I've learned, here's what I've seen. That's your testimony. Uh, it is what you have uh, brought into your life of God's truth. That is your testimony. I, you cannot really testify to those things that you have not incorporated into your own experience. And so you can point to them and say somebody else said something about that, but that's not your testimony. Peter says, what I've shared with you is my testimony. I can bear witness to this, and this has been a very important part of his book, as well as what he's about to write. I'm not just making this stuff up. I am not uh, sharing what others, but rather this is what I have personally witnessed. I have seen the Lord. I, have, I heard this, the <laughs> I heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I well plead, pleased at the baptism. I was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw the resurrected Lord. Um, I witnessed my friend putting his hand in his side and touching his, his uh, palm to see the wounds that were there in the resurrected Lord. I witnessed all that. I heard these teachings. I saw these miracles. And so he says, this is my testimony. But even more than that, my experience goes beyond that. Remember the major themes we've been studying. And that is that, that if you're going to walk with the Lord, you're going to walk in obedience. That, that was one of the main forces of what he started out with in 1 Peter chapter 1. That we are, that God in his foreknowledge and his election of us, elected us not to be saved, elected to have us walk in obedience. That that was what he, he saw. Well, if I'm going to save them, I'm going to en enable them to be obedient. And so I'm going to place my Holy Spirit within them. I'm going to give them his, my word that they have all the tools and all the conditions so they can walk in obedience. Unlike Israel, who had the law, but the law, while it pointed out how we ought to maybe be obedient, did not help you become obedient. Not really. It really just pointed out your sin, as Paul talks about. And so with this salvation, it says, listen, God has enabled you for obedience. He has equipped you to be obedient. And we have his word, we have his spirit, we have his people around us. And all these things are enablers to help us be obedient followers of Jesus Christ. But don't think that obedience doesn't come at a price. 
That way, as we obediently follow after Jesus, Jesus says, listen, if they hated me and killed me, they'll hate you and will desire to do injury to you. And so, along with that testimony of obedience, Peter also shares the testimony of suffering. And he himself has received that. He has experienced that, and he anticipates experiencing it to the point of death because Jesus told him that, that that's what was going to happen to him. He was not going to live till Christ's return. And so he's preparing himself. We're going to see that a lot more in 2 Peter. But his testimony is, listen, you're going to suffer if you're going to follow Jesus because the world doesn't want you to follow Jesus. They want to deny his power. They want to deny who he is. And so they're going to always, always, always put pressure on you to walk in disobedience rather than obedience. And those pressure points vary among people, groups, uh, sometimes we can use violent means. Sometimes we can just use social mechanisms like, uh, I'm not going to talk to you anymore if you're going to do that, or you're not cool, or you're not whatever. Whatever social pressure they can put on you. Uh, sometimes they'll do it economic pressures to say, well, if you're going to do that, um, we're going to make sure you don't ha can't make a living. You can't take care of yourself. Anything to make you buckle and look to God's word for excuses not to obey. So you can have a more comfortable life. And Peter says, listen, this is not the Christian experience. The Christian experience has been taught to us from Jesus all the way through all the scriptures that if you're going to walk with the Lord, the world will hate you, they should hate you, and suffering and tribulation should be the normal experience of the believer. That's his testimony. He's lived that. And he calls us to that. But he also says, not only am I testifying to this, but I am exhorting you in this. An exhortation is more than just communicating, well, this is my experience, and, and I can just, you know, I can kind of dismiss testimonies. Well, that's good for you. And we see a lot of that attitude. Well, that's good for you. That's your, your experience. That's your testimony, what God's done for you or has done in your life. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be in my life, exhortation, which is where he starts here, my exhorting and testifying, he begins with exhortation. He says, this is what should be in your life. This is directive. This is not just a demonstration and uh, communicating uh, my experience, but also saying this should be your experience. This is what the Christian walk is. It is defined by obeying God. Be holy as I am holy. This is the Christian experience. And if that is lacking in our life, there's something wrong in the definition of what you think a Christian is. If you think a Christian is just someone who has prayed this, this certain prayer and has declared that uh, Jesus Christ is is their Savior, and then nothing changes in their life, and there's no interruption in their life, there's no, there's no evidence in their life, then that definition of Christian is not a biblical one. It is not one that Peter would agree to, that Jesus would, that Paul, any of these New Testament writers would agree to. John, all of them, don't say you love me if you're not willing to keep my commandments. Uh, you cannot have that. Oh, I love Jesus. Well, where? Show me. Where is the evidence of that? And so Peter here is not just saying, here's our experience, but here is what you should have in your life. 
that God has brought Jesus Christ, uh, he has provided that offer of salvation to all men, that if you are going to pick up that offer of salvation, that gift of God, that requires you to humble yourself before him, acknowledge your sin, and receive that, that then there's going to be a transformation in your life. And without that transformation uh, having occurred, you cannot claim the precedent, that which came before it. Because this will always generate this. That is the conclusion that Peter has, and he's not alone in that. The scriptures have that conclusion, that if we are going to walk with, we are going to be called by his name, we're going to walk in his truth, and obedience should be evident there. And the outworking of obedience in this world will always be suffering because the world will hate you for it. If you're getting along with the world, that should be a warning sign to you. Something's not quite right in my life if they like me so much. And then, of course, in our relationships, one of the other major themes in Peter of building into our relationship within our family, within our community, within our church, all of these are critical aspects of the Christian walk, that this is not something we do in isolation, that we do uh, with, with uh, one against everyone uh, or ignore, ignoring everyone, but God has brought in this breadth and these relationships in our lives very purposefully and that we have responsibility to participate in those relationships, not just for our benefit, but for their benefit, that I pour myself out for others, for my brethren. This is Peter's experience, right? It's his testimony, but it's also his exhortation. Listen, wives, you better start living like this. Husbands, this is, you, you, you dwell with your wives with understanding. These are directives. Children, be obedient. These are directive. These are exhortive. And we don't like exhortation. You guys are used to it because you get it almost every week. Um, exhortation. Uh, but a lot of people don't, and they don't flock to churches where there's a lot of exhorting going on. They prefer a lot of, um, well, I call it spiritual pandering, but they prefer to be stroked. They prefer to be encouraged. And, and, and there's place for encouragement, and then we're going to see some of that today and especially next week. Um, and we're going to, and certainly that's necessary, and that's part of our fellowship is to make sure. But if all I ever look for is encouragement, and I never, ever experience or get exhortation, then I'm going to be encouraged right into oblivion. I'm going to be encouraged not to conform myself to Christ, because conforming yourself to Christ is hard work. And it means I have to humble myself. I have to acknowledge that um, I was wrong, that I haven't been doing what I should have been doing. I have to acknowledge those kinds of things. Well, I haven't quite been obedient to God's word. And we don't like exhortation. But we love people to sit there and give their testimony. We can say, oh, praise God for how he's done, been working in you. And, and, and uh, we're excited about that for them. But we can walk away from those kinds of experiences untouched that we have to do anything different in our life. Peter says that's not what this is. It's exhorting with testimony. So I'm testifying and I'm exhorting. Uh, well, what is it, the content? And of course, the content is referring to the whole book. And that's that last phrase here in verse 12. It says that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Now, we just got done with a whole series of sermons about standing against Satan. 
that not attacking, but standing, defending, and recognizing the suffering involved, the pain that's involved in that, the agony sometimes that is there uh, to resist Satan, the necessity of remaining true in our faith and uh, established. We've looked at the uh, expectation that God's grace will come up at the end of that, that uh, he will come and comfort you at the, if you remain faithful, so that, that it becomes not only the world is against you, it might even appear that God is against you, but what is really happening is God ha- is using that as a test, a gauge on your faith toward him. And we looked, remember, at the parable of the sower and the soils, the seed, you know, are you one that's going to survive the heat of the summer sun? Are you going to be able to thrive because you're rooted deep in God's word? Or are you going to do like so many do and simply perish because you blame God for it all? How could he let this happen to me? And I don't deserve this. It's not fair. And then we wander away from the faith. And again, Hebrews warns us, beware of falling away. How difficult it is to be restored to repentance, I think Hebrews says it's impossible. I'm so glad God does impossible things. So, we are warned. Well, Peter here takes this and says, listen, there's a warfare involved. You're engaged in it. It's not just the world. It's not just your own flesh. Those are hard enough to deal with. But now you have an enemy, the evil one, that you also have to recognize his devices, uh, that he is prowling all over the place. And not that he is omnipresent, remember. He's limited, a finite creature. uh, And... Certainly with power, but not unlimited power. With some knowledge, but not unlimited knowledge. Uh, He is finite. And so we can stand this ground to God's glory, that once we have done that, that God says, now my grace will be multiplied to you. In those four words at the end of verse 10 that we spent two weeks on. There is one little phrase in verse 10, though, that we kind of... uh, didn't address very heavily. We really talked about it early on in the book of 1 Peter um, because Peter was using certain words and he revisits one of those words that is often associated with with the other words. And so because he says, listen, what I have taught you, exhorted you, testified that this, what is this in verse 12? This is the true grace of God in which you stand. So you're going to have to take a stand. What am I standing for and in and by. And so he's, and, and he's already shared all of this. He says, listen, this that I've just taught you. So that word this refers to the previous five chapters of information. This letter, these uh, items that I have shared with you that we have been studying for so many months is that in which you stand. But look at the phrase there. This is the true grace of God in which you stand. As a believer, I stand in the grace of God. Do I want it to stagnate or do I want it to increase? So many Christians are comfortable being stagnated in the grace of God. What does that mean? Well, remember verse 10, it says that the grace of God um, will be increased, all right, to his eternal glory. It says, who called us to his eternal glory, 
by Christ, it says, but may the God of all grace, and now we find in verse 12 the term true grace, be extended to you. And we saw that that came after a period of suffering in that verse. After you have suffered a little while, here's how the grace of God will be poured out on you. And so the expectation of Peter is that real grace living is not of sitting back in comfort and having it stagnate around us, but it always is increasing, that God's grace should be increasing our life. And let's make sure we know what grace is again. It is God's favor that we do not deserve. God's favor that we do not deserve. Now, we, it may appear to others that we are trying to earn his favor, but that is really not the case. We are responding to his favor. So, God always initiates that, right? He brings favor where it does not, is not deserved. So, he died for me long before I sought him. He provided for my salvation in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he initiated grace in my life. But he didn't just initiate it there. Um, his Holy Spirit will also convict me of my sin, his righteousness, and the judgment to come. And so that's an act of his grace. As I respond to that grace by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, I have an opportunity to then, having responded to that, to receive even more things I don't deserve. I'm not responding to God's provision of salvation because I want to get more rewards. I'm responding because he's already done so much for me. I simply want to receive what he has already graced towards me. And so he has already called me, and that's the phrase there, he has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And he calls all men everywhere to repentance. Remember, no, we haven't gotten to that aspect yet, but we're, remember that. He has called all men. And so he has called us as a subgroup of all men who have responded to that invitation to receive Christ as your Savior. All right, so I've received his grace, and I am in a condition of, of blessedness because I have received salvific grace from God that he initiated, I responded, received it, and now how do I want to engage myself? If I understand, if I truly understand grace, how am I going to respond to someone who has given me something wonderful that I don't deserve? How am I going to respond? Am I going to ignore it? Am I going to pretend it doesn't exist? How do you respond when I give you something you really, truly know you didn't deserve that transforms your life, changes your life. So if I walk up to you, and because we are Americans and money is everything, and I give you $10 million, I say, here, I'm going to give you $10 million. Well, that's going to change your life. Would you agree with that? Unfortunately, it's probably going to change your life. <laughs> probably not for the good, but it'll change your life. Well, what are you willing, how, what is your response to that? How are you going to engage that person that has come in with that wonderful gift out of the blue that you did not initiate, you did not pay for, but you are the benefactor of it? Well, I'm going to respond with thanksgiving. I'm going to respond with gratitude. And that gratitude is, well, what can I do for you? I have been the recipient of something wonderful. Now, in gratitude, 
I want to do that which pleases you. Right? It's a natural inclination, and it should be. And so, when we have received salvation, our response should be, according to Peter's teaching, obedience. Do you remember that? Those words back there in chapter 1 that we are, that he has designed for our obedience? Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Make sure we remember some of this. Um, right away in verse 1, uh, and oh, verse 2, we'll pick up verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been chosen, we who trust in Christ, not to... The election, of course, here was we are elect to obedience. You see that? If we break down this verse, we are elected for obedience. Not elected to be saved, but rather those who will be saved, God has made possible our obedience. And so that is, and that's again, we could pick up on that, and, and again, it's, it's a theme, right? So it should be repeated. So verse 14, this is a little review for you from a year ago or more. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Do you see the connection there? Obedience is part of your calling. It is part of, God has chosen that those who call themselves Christians be obedient. That's what he has chosen for you. He called you and elected you. He has, he has foreknown you for that. And then we can go later on in this chapter to um, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And we see that relationship. So I am recipient, the recipient of God's grace, all grace, true grace. True grace is unearned, yes. But that doesn't mean that I'm no longer going to engage with the grantor of grace with obedience. It doesn't mean I can just coast through and say, I don't have to earn it. Well, you didn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. But now that you have received it, what should true grace look like in your life? Peter says it's obedience. It is an act of gratitude. Obedience is the mechanism by which in my relationships, in my ministries, in my personal life, in my thoughts, in, my, in, in, in all these areas, that I'm going to be obedient because that's what pleases God. And he's already done so much for you. I have a huge debt I will never repay. I can't repay. And so if this is one little way I can at least not repay him, but thank him, then I'll do it. This is what Peter is sharing. He says, this is the true grace of God. He initiates it. And then once I respond with obedience, God says, I'll grace you further. And, and that grace might look like suffering. Is that God's grace? Yes. Because we don't want to be stagnated. If you want, I say, I, say, I always want more of God's grace in my life. Well, I said, get ready. Get ready for that. Because we know how that happens, right? In verse 10. And has he called you to that? Yes. He wants 
his grace to magnify your life. Well, how? Well, from Peter's own testimony, his own experience, it's by being hauled in and beaten. It's by being imprisoned and then enduring that to God's glory and still praising him, still testifying of him. Um, and sometimes you got to have angels kick you and say, get up, uh, because you, know, you think you're dreaming. Uh, but uh, when his grace appears... Not because you're deserving of it. Remember, grace is favor that you cannot earn. Then I go, wow, he's done even more for me. And we come to these words that we studied the last two weeks. At the end of verse 10, and he says, you endured that. Now I'm going to pour my grace out on you to re-energize you, to refit you, to re-engage you, to, re to, to re stand you up for ministry. For God's glory. We've been called to glorify God. You want to glorify God? It's, it's not the American model. That, that is the mechanism of glorification. We think that every time somebody's walking around with everything going their way, that that is the evidence that God blesses them. Those that are struggling with huge opposition and enemies and, and impoverished and imprisoned, oh, well, why isn't God blessing them? He is blessing them. It's the other people he's not blessing. They are missing the grace. The true grace of God comes in the midst of this. And Peter says, listen, this is what I've been trying to tell you in this very short book, that this is, I want to exhort you, I want to testify to you that this is the grace of God. Now, is he alone? No. And this gets us into the first part of the verse. So I'm kind of taking it out of order a little bit. So this gets us to the first part of the verse and the next part of the verse. Actually, the next verse, verse 13. He's not alone. He says, listen, I'm sending this by Silvanus. Now, you might say, who in the world is Silvanus? Silvanus um, is one way of saying another name that you are very familiar with, and that is Silas. So one is more Greek, and the other one more Hebrew. Um, and so you know him as Silas. Uh, here, Peter uses this terminology because of the context of who he's writing to and where he's writing from, which we're going to see when he talks about Babylon uh, here, probably more next week by the time I uh, get to that. And so we find the Silvanus. He says, listen, I am sending this letter. Some people think he might have been the amanuensis, that is the secretary writing it down while Peter says these words. Um, but more than likely it was delivered by Silvanus. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him. So we have Silas being a participant in this process somehow of agreeing with what Peter is writing down, and together they form a very powerful presentation in the area of testimony, don't they? Now, who is Silas? Well, we have to go back into Acts a little bit, and we find out that he was in Jerusalem. Says that he was one of the leading men in Jerusalem. This is in Acts chapter 15, if you're wondering exactly where. In Acts chapter 15, there's the Jerusalem councils held. Well, what, what, how much of the law do Gentile people have to keep who become Christians? Do they have to keep the, the Mosaic law? Do they have to keep the Levitical law? How much do they have to keep? How much of the law 
is required for followers of Jesus Christ to keep. And they boil it down to just two. Wow. Two? And those two really are before the law of Moses. They really weren't in the law of Moses. They were actually going back to the flood and what the requirements on Noah. You know, don't eat, drink blood. Don't, don't eat blood. And so I'm not going to do that because the life is in the blood. And we're not going to uh, engage in sexual immorality. That's a pretty simple decision. I mean, and then they said, let's let them come in. We're going to bring the Gentiles in. We're only going to put these two things on them. The fact is we can't keep the law, so why are we putting it on you? Uh, by the way, we're supposed to be living above the law, and so the law is now longer dictative to us. We're really now working on another level. So I'm not worrying about murdering people because I'm really concerned that I don't hate people. And that's a really, that's hard work. You know, when people are doing violence against you or ones you love or care about, um, to not hate them. Okay? But that's where we are, and if I don't hate, I won't murder. Um, I'm not worried about committing adultery because I'm really concerning myself with lusting. So if I don't lust after a woman uh, in my heart, that the act will not follow because the desire has been squelched. At that level. So I'm operating on a different level than the law. So I'm not tied to the law. Jerusalem Council decided, listen, we're not going to impose the law on the Gentile believers. And shame on any group that wants to undo that decision in Acts 15. They did not say you had to keep the Sabbath. I got a call this week from somebody who's trying to condemn me for having worship services now. Um, on the Lord's Day instead of a Saturday, which isn't a Sabbath either. And, uh, and, and I have no toleration, I have no patience for that. Why are you trying to load us down with the law when the Jerusalem Council 15 says you're free? Just make sure you go back to the pre-law expectations of God. So we come now, and Silas is there, and uh, apparently in the church in Jerusalem, when this is all decided, and the church, the leadership of the church there says, we're going to send two guys up to Antioch, which is a Gentilian church, and we're going to have them uh, carry this important message to Antioch to tell them, hey, all you people who weren't Jews before you got saved, um, you don't have to keep the law. Just make sure you, you, you don't participate in this and that. So a couple things. And what great joy there was. And so uh, up those two go, uh, one of the names I think it was Judas, and you know, it was Silas. So Silas goes up there, and he likes it what's going up there so much, he doesn't want to go home. And he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't go home. He says, this is exciting. And he's up there with a couple of guys named Paul and Barnabas and a few others there. And uh, he's, he's loving this. Now, Paul and Barnabas have already been on a missionary journey this is after they've gotten back from their first missionary journey. And so he's up there and he starts, he joins in with the teaching and the ministry of that church. He doesn't get back to Jerusalem. But I want you to notice his relationship with Jerusalem. That's how Peter knows him. Peter says, listen, he is someone I am well familiar with. When he says he is our faithful brother, as I consider him, means I personally vouch that this man has been faithful since the time I knew him in Jerusalem many years ago. 
He was vouched as one of the faithful men, that, the, the uh, prominent men that needed to be sent up, that could be trusted with this message and entrusted with ministry to go up to Antioch and represent in himself all of the Jerusalem council. That's, and not only did he do that, then he persisted in ministry, and we find him then going out with Paul, and most of us recognize Paul and Silas as, or as being the, in the second missionary journey, as being that missionary team going out, and, and we see him uh, traveling with Paul, ministering uh, pretty much everywhere Paul goes. Silas is right there. Um, Athens is the exception. Remember, Timothy and Silas stay back. Paul goes on to Athens. They, they get chased out of Berea. And uh, they join him in Corinth. See, well, what happened to Silas after all of that activity? Uh, well, the likelihood is that the, the tradition is that he was there in Rome and that Paul and Peter are both in Rome. And the evidence is from the verse about those of Babylon is probably a reference to Rome, or at least Italy, that Peter is there, which means that Silas was there. Because it says, I'm sending this by Silas, who has been faithful all these years. He was a standout among the church way back there in Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council. He has been faithful in ministry. He looks forward. He's even willing to to just move. I mean, he just goes, and, and now he's in Antioch. This is too exciting to leave. I don't want to go. There's been a couple of times you sent me on trips for ministry. I didn't want to come back. Were you afraid? Because I had a family here. You knew I was coming back. But apparently he didn't have those ties and he just says, I'm going to go with that, and then I'm going to go with Paul, I'm going to go. He just went everywhere ministering, and he was faithful. But Peter says, I consider him that. I have personal uh, vouching for this man that from early on in the church in Jerusalem, where I would have had the first contact with him, all the way now to here we are in Rome, and I'm reaching the end of my life in ministry, and he's been faithful the whole way. He's been ministering God uh, throughout that entire period, uh, seemingly uninterrupted. I mean, this is the guy that went with Paul into that jail. He went with Paul in the beatings. He went with Paul. I mean, this guy was faithful. And now we have not just Peter as a testimony, but we have Silas as a testimony. Why do I like that? It's because Silas wasn't one of the apostles. He was just a guy. He was just a guy. We don't know what he did for a living. I guess he just ministered for a living. He wasn't one of the seven. He wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't, he wasn't someone of, of, of uh, known leadership in any of those. He wasn't a member of the Jerusalem Council. Um, he was just sent as an emissary representing them, but he wasn't one of them. And so we find that this is just a guy. Isn't that good? Peter says, yeah, you might say, well, you have to because you're Peter. You're one of the apostles. You got the keys of the kingdom and, and da, da, da. So that's why it's your testimony. He says, no, I'm sending this to you by another guy named Silas, and I'm telling you, boy, this is a faithful brother. His credentials 
may not be officially higher than mine, but as far as I'm concerned, his testimony is equivalent. And that should be credential enough for you. I'm sending this word by Silas, and he is a faithful brother as I consider him. And so, uh, what I am testifying and writing of, what I am exhorting you, um, he's, he's backing that up 100%, not only by approving it, but by demonstrating it. And oh, that we would have that understanding of the relationships within the church. The old adage uh, when I was growing up, well, pastors are paid to be good and the rest of us are good for nothing. You ever heard that? How many of you never heard that till just now? Okay, a couple, few of you. All right, so I'll say it again. Pastors are paid to be good and the rest of you are good for nothing. Now that's horrible, isn't it? That's a horrible thing to say because we think good for nothing means that you're not helpful. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that's true that we have an attitude, the only reason that he is what he is is because it's a profession and the rest of us aren't really expected, don't expect it of ourselves to measure up to that walk. And so I go to passages that talk about the qualifications of elders, bishops, pastors, and, and I don't put myself in there because I'm not an elder, bishop, pastor. Not recognizing that what this list is is just that this is the exemplary list of the Christian walk and that you have to have a man that meets those requirements to fulfill this office. It does not mean that he is the only one expected to fulfill those requirements. And that somehow we have this standard for that and this standard for ourselves. And Silas is Silvanus is the example of the opposite. His standard is faithful. He's a faithful brother. He wants to minister. Oh no, he wasn't one of the 12 or one of the 14, because remember there was a couple that followed Jesus the whole time. Uh, no indication he was there at all, and he shows up in years later, decades later, in the Jerusalem church. Uh, we have no idea of his background. We have no idea what his training is. None of that. He's a faithful brother. He's going to minister. He's going to uh, be a, a tremendous help and encouragement to Paul. And the one time Paul um, goes on without him um, from Athens, before he even goes to Corinth from Athens, he says, come quick. He sends a letter to Silas, come quick. I don't like being here by myself. And he still preaches at the, uh, in Athens. He's not going to be negligent. But boy, he, he really wanted Silas and Timothy to get back to him they didn't get back to him in Athens. They hooked up with him when he got to Corinth by the time they got going and, and hooked up. Somehow they figured out that he was going to Corinth. Um, but that's how encouraging he was. Oh, that we understand the necessity that we have godly people who are going to be faithful in the exhorting and in the testimony of faith um, in the lady and recognize that I have that same expectation. God has expectation of me that I walk in faithfulness. And Silas is a wonderful testimony to this. Okay, Peter, it's fine for you. You're an apostle. It's fine for you 
but I'm just a normal Joe. You know, you're paid to do all this. You're, you're called specifically to this. You have that responsibility on your shoulders. You got the keys of the kingdom, whatever that means. And, but me, Silas fills in that gap. He says, he's a faithful brother. What I'm exhorting, what I'm testifying, he will not only agree to and confirm, he will demonstrate to you. Oh, that we would have that as our aspiration, that I will be the, the confirmation, the demonstration of the truths of Scripture to those that are around me, and by so doing that I be of great help and encouragement and ministering to the ministers. This is how you minister to ministers. <laughs> Remember we talked about the relationships in, our, in this, and that one of the relationships we talked about is the shepherds of the flock and their responsibilities. Well, it's men like Silas that minister to the ministers by faithfulness. And so we can go back and we can see the principles here that they're faithful. Was Silas faithful in the midst of suffering? Oh, yes. He sat in that prison with Paul and sang. It wasn't just Paul's voice. It was Silas's too. They sang together. I often wonder who initiated it. Maybe it was Silas. Because certainly, Paul says, I'm just not very good at this ministry without you. Come join me in Corinth. Oh, that we would have these faithful individuals that say, I will take up this role to, to fulfill the exhortation of Scripture to be Christ-like, to walk in obedience. I've been called to that. You see, you weren't just called to be saved, you were called to obedience. And when you fulfill that calling, it substantially ministers in the people of God, among the people of God, and in their ministry, wherever it goes. Dear friend of mine and co-minister John Bailey, some of you remember him before he, is, he was whisked off to Arizona. Every time he ever introduced my ministry to people or talked about it to people, um, he would insist on saying this, that Pastor Kirk is this, usually he says like a truck, he's like a Mack truck coming through um, in his teaching, but he says, but there's a reason why he's just going like he is, because he's got this bulldozer pushing him from behind called Joyce Wesselink. He would always introduce us that way. Huh, wouldn't he? Just like, I mean, if, I had, if I've heard it once, it's probably ten times. And just to understanding of what was entailed in that, he saw it. He recognized the ministry to the minister and what it benefits the greater capital M ministry. And that's what Silas was. You don't find him speaking. There's no book of Silas in your Bible. He didn't write scripture. But he's a faithful brother. And he was helpful to Paul. He was helpful to the church of Antioch. He was helpful to Jerusalem. And Peter says, he's helpful to me. And here, we're probably in Rome. And the likelihood is that not only Peter's there, but Paul's there too. 
There's some strong indication that both of those men were in Rome at the same time um, in some pretty rough circumstances, getting ready to end their ministries. And Silas is there. He's faithful. He's dependable. And he persists. Did he suffer? Yes. But on the other end of it, he was graced by God. And those four words at the end of verse 10, he was graced by God because he endured. He persisted. He kept ministering to Paul. Whatever Paul needed, he was there. Whatever the church needs, there. Whatever Peter needs, he's there. What a wonder, whatever the church in Jerusalem needed, he was there. I'll do what you want me to do. I'm, I'm available. I'm here. All my resources are put to bear on you. And the one resource he had was his faithful following of Jesus Christ. He was obedient. His relationships were godly. He was uh, in standing fast in his faith, even in the midst of suffering. So this is not just a name thrown out historically. I believe it is Peter demonstrating that all that he has taught in this book isn't just for apostles. It's for everyone who calls themselves by the name of Jesus. By declaring themselves, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I am a Christian, a little Christ, that you all are called to faithfulness in this area. And by being faithful, that alone, in and of itself, will magnify and multiply ministry by the rest of the body of Christ. And so I want to encourage you to follow the testimony of Silas as I strive to follow the testimony of men like Peter. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you again for your word and for the opportunity we have today to study it together. Lord, our prayer and desire is that you might find this church faithful. We recognize for that to happen really requires that you find each person in this church faithful. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of men like Peter and Silas that you have poured out your grace upon, that they responded as unprofitable servants only doing their duty in thanksgiving and joy. Lord, our prayer is that we might be like-minded. And it might be evident all around us that we are followers of your truth, being obedient to your word, recognizing this is what you've called us to. This is your expectation. This is the means by which we declare our thanksgiving to you is to stand fast against the opponents, the opposition that we encounter in this world. We might bring you the glory, the honor, and the praise, both now and forevermore. 
In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.